The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And now I want to invite my friend Charlie Creech up to read today's scripture. Come on, Charlie. Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud for you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great job, Charlie. Great to serve God's people with you twice today. It takes a lot of courage to do that. I just want to always be reminding us uh, how much courage it takes for a young man to do that. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Scott. Uh, it's great to see you. If we have met, if we've been in community for eight years, it's also great to, to see you. Uh, and uh, those of you on the other side of the camera, uh, glad you are joining us as well from home. And uh, we are so eager to turn the corner on 2020, God willing, uh, and uh, get all of your faces back into uh, the community with us. But we're, we're very glad as you, uh, as you stay safe at home uh, and take the precautions that you feel you need to, that you are able to see our faces and uh, be just as much as part, a part of our community this morning as anyone who is here. Uh, we cannot wait uh, to all be uh, physically together again. Uh, but for now, we wait, uh, which is a, a great Advent word, waiting. It's a, it's a significant Advent theme. We have been uh, in our Advent series this year that we're calling A Weary World Rejoices, uh, Advent messages in the book of Isaiah. And today, uh, we are going to focus on the why of singing. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his Reflections on the Psalms that, that when he first became a Christian, when he first became a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, he went into churches and always left feeling that the act of singing was a little bit ridiculous. 
Uh, he said, why do we do that? That's really weird. It's really strange. Uh, and if God is all-powerful, uh, wh- why does he need us to sing? And, and uh, if we feel awkward, uh, which many of us do, wh- why should we sing together? And uh, he, he went on to write that over time his outlook changed on this, this singing that the people of God do together when they gather. And he, he wrote this. He says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but also completes the enjoyment. In other words, what he's saying is that God has given us singing not because he has this emotional need uh, you know, for us to fill his emotional love tank with our, with our, with our love songs. He says he gives us singing for ourselves that we might express the enjoyment of the one for whom we have been created. And so what Lewis concludes is the duty exists for the delight. If you you come across a a new author that you love, if you come across a a mountain valley that's beautiful, that's breathtaking, Lewis says, uh, if you hear a funny joke, the natural impulse is to draw other people into the experience. You want to share it. And he says the same is true of our love for God. But here's one of the curious things about Christians over the centuries. We don't just sing when we're happy. We don't just sing when we're excited. We also and especially sing when we're down, when we're facing adversity. I don't think I've ever been to a Christian funeral where there wasn't singing requested by the grieving family. Uh, We sing a hymn quite regularly here at at Christ Prez uh, called It Is Well With My Soul, and it's kind of a paradox hymn where, where, you know, we're, we're singing about how painful and difficult and hard the human existence is, and the conclusion from that is, it is well. It is well with my soul. And, and, and one thing that's really remarkable about that particular hymn, at least when I observe our congregation singing it, is that the ones who are singing it with the most force and with the most gusto are the ones who have known significant deep suffering and maybe even who are in the middle of deep suffering. Uh, here's an interesting phenomenon about the year 2020. This has been For many of us, the hardest year in in our memory for various reasons. And one of the things that's happened in our church, just like every church, is that we've we've had much smaller gatherings than, than, than we used to because of the safety factor. But along with those smaller gatherings has become a much more audible congregation during the time, uh, the times when we sing. And I and I and I wonder that if if the reason is that because we are in a season that's so hard and, and filled with so much pressure and waiting and longing, that that's actually compelled us from that place of lament to, to, to bellow out the truths of God even louder. I don't know. But Isaiah's audience was no different. They're, they're actually a prototype for us. You know, we sing during Advent season about uh, how, how the coming Christ would, would ransom captive Israel, and they are, they are captive through the writing of this, uh, this long prophecy from Isaiah. Uh, they're facing, over the course of Isaiah's writing, the tyranny of Assyria, the tyranny of Babylon, and, and eventually the people of God, uh, in the midst of the coming of Christ, 
would be facing the tyranny of Rome, the Roman Empire. And, and the conclusion that Isaiah draws is the same conclusion that the Apostle Paul and, uh, and, and Silas drew when they were in prison in the book of Acts. How can we keep from singing? What's that all about? You know, Isaiah says, sing, O barren one, break forth into singing and cry aloud. Now, there, there are three curious reasons. Well, two of them are curious. The final one is not so curious. Three reasons to sing. A dead womb, a dead marriage, and complete restoration. So let's just go through those three uh, one by one. A dead womb. Isaiah writes, and this is metaphor. He's speaking about the people of Israel. Sing, O barren one. Who did not bear. Sing, O fruitless people. Sing, O people who feel as if your lives have been reduced to nothing. Sing. This, 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 uh, this theme of barrenness is a metaphor for shame in the Bible, for uselessness, and the shame that comes from feeling useless in the world. Now, this is, this is chiefly an ancient Near East dynamic where a woman's identity in particular was wrapped up in the number of children that she was able uh, to have, especially the number of sons. And all throughout, especially the Old Testament, we see that this, this theme of barrenness, this theme of, 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 of infertility for a woman was like a death sentence. It felt like a curse. It felt like she was being a disappointment to her husband because it threatened the financial stability of their home. Remember, these were agrarian societies and the family's wealth and income was dependent on what could be produced on the family farm. And, and lack, of, lack of children meant lack of workers, meant lack of income, meant lack of financial flourishing and thriving. They didn't have 401ks. Uh, they didn't have retirement accounts. They didn't have real estate investments. They had their kids. Their kids were their retirement plan. And if you were uh, elderly and, and without children to take care of you, it meant that you were vulnerable. It meant that you could die hungry and die cold and die alone. There are also legacy issues. The family name stops with my husband and me if I cannot give him sons, a woman would think to herself. But there wasn't just family shame, there was also societal shame that she would feel because uh, the national heroes in Israel at this time were women who gave birth to many sons because it was those sons that, that, that ended up being enlisted in the military to make, make it a stronger, uh, 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 you know, stronger military, a stronger political force, Israel, right? And so women who produced many sons were valued because of that way because of those reasons. And then, and then she was uh, disappointed with herself. Who am I if I cannot have children? What is my life for? What is my life worth? I am not enough. Now this gives us context for the, the significant, intense, emotional reaction of some of the women in Scripture who faced this barrenness reality. Sarah says to her husband Abraham, give me children or I will die. Hannah, another woman who uh, is infertile, it says she wept with bitterness of soul because she could not have children. And if you're like me, you're probably asking yourself by now, what kind of society would put that, put that kind of pressure on a woman? 
to achieve something that she doesn't have the power in herself to achieve, to, to produce something that she doesn't have the, the power to produce. What kind of heartless culture, what kind of heartless society would either give identity to or strip identity from a woman based on this? And while that is a very legitimate question, not so fast. Because if we are appalled by the cultural, by the chosen cultural identity markers of that time and that place, what about our own cultural identity markers that produce shame? While we may not say, I, I feel ashamed because I can't have children, maybe I feel ashamed, maybe I feel barren financially. Why? Because we live in a society that, that, that defines a person's net worth not by their human dignity, not by the fact that they're created in the image of God. We define net worth strictly and solely in financial terms. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to say that somebody's worth is a, is, is a sum of something that they will not take with them. Or maybe we feel barren socially. Maybe we're not saying, give me the status and the lifestyle and the comfort and the control that money promises or I'll, I'll die. Maybe instead we're saying, give me the likes and the follows and the friends and the access to social circles, the access to backstage, or I'll die. Or maybe we feel barren professionally. Give me a, place on the, a certain place on the org chart. Give, give me a certain uh, status on the music charts. Give me a certain status in my industry or I will die. Or physically. Maybe we feel barren physically. Not long ago, somebody posted a, a, a video uh, on Instagram of me playing around and having a conversation with some friends, and the first thing I noticed was how chubby I looked. You know, I see myself straight in the mirror, and I don't look chubby when you look at me this way, but if I turn sideways, you, you would see that I've got, got a little pooch here, and it's not as little as it, as it was last year or the year before. And, and the, I, I kid you not, the first thing that, that, that my emotions did was when they, they went to shame. They went to self-loathing. How could you have such lack of self-control with carbs? You know, give me a better body type or I will die. Are we really superior? Are, are we really more progressed than the culture of Sarah and Hannah? In comes Isaiah. Sing. You are not enough. Sing. No, you really are not enough in yourself. So sing. That's curious. I'll unpack that further in a moment. But first, a dead marriage. Not just a dead womb, but a dead marriage is an occasion to sing. Sing, Isaiah says, like a wife who's, who's been deserted and grieved and cast off. So, so, so Israel feels deserted by God. And... Not hard to understand why from our perspective as we, as, we, as we look at and chronicle Israel's history as a people. They spent over 400 years uh, enslaved by the tyrant, Pharaoh of Egypt. 
And then after God released them from that tyranny, it was into 40 years of wandering uh, what felt like in an aimless way in the desert. Hot, sweaty, blisters, sunburn, boredom for 40 years. By the time we get to the New Testament, Israel has spent literally hundreds of years being invaded, pillaged, trafficked, and weeping over mass genocide of their people, including their children. And of course, the natural question is, where is God in all of this? Does he even exist? And if he really does exist, why have we been subject to so much pain? It feels like betrayal, Israel might say. But again, we've got to be careful. Because it is true that God says, for a brief moment I deserted you. Could have fooled me. Brief moment? It's been centuries, Lord. Brief moment? Well, from my perspective, the Lord may say, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. And we're like, hey, every single one of our days feels like a thousand years. But it has literally been like a thousand years or more. For a brief moment? For a brief moment, the Lord says, I deserted you. In anger, I hid my face from you. What kind of God deserts his people? What kind of God hides his face from his people? What kind of God? Now, here we need to be careful also. Because here's what the true surprise ought to be, given the context. The true surprise is not that God has deserted them and gotten angry toward them. The true surprise is that his desertion and anger is only temporary. That's the surprise. Because they had put themselves in a position where they deserve nothing from God. God owes them nothing. They're entitled to nothing from him. And so the surprise is that it's only a thousand years. Instead of 10,000 upon 10,000. Wait, wait, what are, you, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. The dead marriage between Israel and God was Israel's choice, not God's. That was Israel's desire, not the Lord's desire. Israel wanted a go-through-the-motions, utilitarian marriage to the Lord. We see this dynamic described especially in the prophet Hosea, who was a contemporary of Isaiah. And it's very clear, as the Lord speaks through Hosea, that what the people of Israel wanted was an open marriage with God. Oh, they didn't want to run away from him entirely. They were still committed to showing up for dinner. They were still committed to sleeping in the same bed at night. But they wanted an open marriage. They wanted to play the field. They wanted to breathe the cultural air of the cultures around them. They wanted to assimilate into the culture around them. And what that meant was that, that, that while they gave their lives on the Sabbath to the worship of the, in the temple, all the days in between they gave their lives to, to the gods of the world. What are those gods? Sex, money, power. Sex, money, power. That's who we sleep with during the week. And then we have dinner and go to bed 
at home on the Lord's Day, metaphorically speaking. Adulterers is what God says. Southern polite doesn't cover this. It doesn't correct it. It it doesn't negate it. You're unfaithful with a smile on your face. You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are a million miles away from me, Isaiah would, Isaiah would write elsewhere. You want an open marriage, and I don't want to have anything to do with an open marriage. That's why I've deserted you. That's why I got fuming angry. They kept going to the temple. What an insult. You know, it's like, it's like a man who's been unfaithful to his wife for, for a dozen years, and she finally f- finds out and, and, and discovers that she's been sharing a bed for 12 years with a man who's been unfaithful to her the whole time. It makes her feel sick. It makes her want to vomit. It makes her want to desert him (laughs) and to get infuriated with him. That's actually what you call a healthy person. Not a vindictive spouse, a healthy spouse creates distance from infidelity. That is health, not betrayal. That's a response to betrayal, not betrayal. And so Isaiah in verse 4 talks about the shame of Israel's youth. You're ashamed because you should be, he says to them. Because you've treated me like a husband who has been so bold as to traipse into the house, sit down at the dinner table and, and say, I sure love you, but I really would like to date other people and I really don't want to do without your inheritance. And so I don't want a divorce. I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll show up at dinner and, and I'll sleep in our bed, but I want to play the field. How is she going to respond to that? She will separate from him, just as God has separated healthily from Israel in, in hopes of wooing her back. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. You don't know what you got till it's gone. You see his strategy here. God has no intention of ultimately and forever leaving and forsaking his people, but he has to leave and forsake them for a while. He has to show them that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace, forfeit the joy that could be theirs. You're going to love your money instead of me? You're going to be poor. Maybe, maybe, you'll, maybe you'll make bank, but you'll still be poor. Money will not make you happy. Just read Ecclesiastes. Or you want to give yourself to, to sex, and you're going to become impotent in more ways than you realize. Or you want to give yourself to power instead of me, you're going to become weaker than you ever dreamed of becoming weak. David Foster Wallace was an agnostic and an American writer, and he gave a speech at Kenyon College not long before his suicide. And he started talking as an agnostic about worship in this address. And he said this, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
The compelling reason to worship God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money, it will never be enough. If you worship sexual allure, once you start aging, you'll start to feel ugly. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. Agnostic, naming the three idols of Isaiah's time, sex, money, power. Did you hear that? It's right there in the human heart. If we don't go toward Yahweh, if we don't go toward Jesus, we're going to go toward sex, money, power, some combination thereof. And it will drive us into the ground. He says, if you worship your intellect, you will eventually feel stupid and like a fraud. You know, Calvin, John Calvin, not an agnostic, but a, a committed follower of Christ, said that the human heart is an idol factory. But the effect of giving ourselves to idols, the effect of giving ourselves to things that are not God, and plugging our emotional umbilical cords into them, the effect is that, that, that we will develop a venereal disease of the soul. And this is what Isaiah is speaking to. You'd, make a tr you'd made a train wreck of your own lives, Israel, so sing. Okay, so now we get to the why. Sing because out of a dead womb and dead marriage will come complete restoration. Emily Dickinson, in one of her chilling poems, very short poem, I'm about to read the whole thing to you, said this with respect to heaven. I saw no way. The heavens were stitched. I felt the columns close. The end. It's just her way of saying, I felt barren. I felt deserted. Maybe I felt a little bit prostituted also. And in sweeps the promise of God. Based on a covenant that, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made amongst themselves before the first person was even born. Isaiah calls it the covenant of peace. The covenant of peace means a couple of things. First, it means a love that will never let you go. He gushes here. Your maker is still your husband. I don't want somebody different than you. I want a new you. Your maker is still your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. For a moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. With great compassion for the ditch you've dug for yourselves. With great compassion over the pain you're feeling from self-inflicted unfaithfulness. I have great compassion for you and will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. Why would God stay with such an unfaithful group of people? Let's just go through the history of wonderful people that, 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 that mark you know, the eras of redemptive history. Noah, who got drunk in front of his own sons. Abraham, who offered his wife up to predators in order to protect himself. Isaac, who did the same thing with his wife. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Jacob, who exploits his own father's disability in order to steal something from his own brother. And then, of course, bringing up the rear is Judah, who slept with prostitutes. Couldn't God find better ingredients to work with than this to write the story of redemption? And the answer to this is 
better ingredients don't exist. They don't exist among the human race. They do not exist outside of Christ, outside of the one who was and who is and who is to come. So I've shared this before. One of the, one of the major wonders of the world to me is banana bread. Banana bread is amazing. It's sweet. It's moist. I, you know, I, the reason why I look the way I do in Instagram videos is, is because of things like banana bread. But here's why it's such a mystery. The major ingredient of banana bread is a rotten piece of fruit. It's a rotten piece of fruit. And we are rotten pieces of fruit left to ourselves rotten. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. Their throats are like open graves. That means if you or I open our mouths, God looks down with, with a scope, he will see death. Whatever death looks like, that's what he will see when we open our throats because, as Romans 3 continues, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no better ingredients. But here's the thing, just like rotten bananas, banana bread doesn't become the glory that it does in spite of the rotten banana, but mysteriously and strangely because of the rotten banana. Your, 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 your dead womb, your dead marriage behavior is actually the occasion for God's unfailing love. It's what triggers him not to leave you, but to love you. What could be better than that? And then lastly, a promise that will never let you down to the barren woman of Israel and, and to the barren woman of us. He says, your offspring will possess the nations. You will not be ashamed. You'll not be disgraced. You will forget the shame. So whenever the Old Testament talks about offspring or a seed, you have to look back to Genesis 3.15, which is the very first presentation of the gospel in the Bible, where, where the Lord says the seed will crush the serpent's head. The seed refers to Jesus Christ. The serpent, of course, refers to that intelligent, personal reality that the Bible calls Satan, the evil one, the seed, the offspring, the coming Christ. This is an Advent promise, but it's based on something that, that has been decided in the, in the distant past. Again, chapter or verse 10 talks about how God's steadfast love will be ratified through the covenant of peace. The Puritan John Flavel gives a wonderful rendition of what the covenant of peace between the father and son must have looked like in eternity past based on what the scriptures teach. And here's how Flavel portrays it. The father and son meet together before time in conference with the Holy Spirit. And the father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And the son replies, O oh, my father, such is my love and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. 
Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe to thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father says, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. To which the son replies, I am content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I am able to pay it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. You want to know why God has such a low bar for us? It's because he set the bar infinitely high for himself. Utter perfection. How could we keep from singing? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you are the kind of God that loves us way too much to let us get away with our own infidelities. And likewise, you love us too much to allow us to sit forever in the shame that we not only feel, but also the shame that we have brought upon ourselves. As we've turned away from you, as we've sought to share beds with other lovers and left you sleeping alone. Father, we thank you that these infidelities of ours have always been, are, and will always be the occasion not for your rejection, but for your love. And because you would love us in this way, how can we keep from singing? And Lord, how could we keep from giving our whole selves to you, forsaking all others? May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.